0: Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, *Immovable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, all you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence, and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. A while ago, I was in a New York city cafe with a friend of mine who asked me what was Hemingway's most Hemingway-esque sentence ever? Now I'm sure he was just taunting me, but I pretended he wasn't. I answered him and my answer to his question formed the basis of my introductory lecture on Hemingway in every course I've taught in the last 15 years. Today's show introduces a feature that aims to do something similar. We take Hemingway at his own premise we will be asking our guest a very simple question, his choice for Hemingway's One True Sentence, and then, as Hemingway writes, go on from there. Through learning the One True Sentence of our guest, we learn more about the sentence, we learn more about our guest, we learn more about Hemingway, we learn more about literature and art and life, which is what we're doing here, after all. And One True Podcast is delighted that my dear friend, Carl Eby, has joined us to play one true sentence with us. Carl isn't just one of the greatest living Hemingway scholars, he's also the most generous. Carl Eby is president of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. He's the author of the extremely important Hemingway's Fetishism, Psychoanalysis, and the Mirror of Manhood. He is the co-editor of Hemingway's Spain, Imagining the Spanish World, and he is currently working on a volume devoted to the Garden of Eden, for Kent State University Press's Reading Hemingway series. For many years, he taught at the University of South Carolina, Beaufort, where he was a Carolina trustee professor. And since 2013, he has been a professor of English at Appalachian State University. Carl Eby, welcome to One True Podcast.
1: Thank you, thank you so much, Mark. And thanks so much for the very, very generous introduction.
0: Not at all, it's great to have you here. And what is your one true sentence and why? (laughs) okay this is fun
1: it's it's um there's a little bit of karmic retribution in here i was uh advising an honors thesis a couple of months ago and my student was using the phrase and i challenged her to define it what do do you mean by one true sentence uh and so i think about it in a couple of different ways i mean there are those you know those sentences like you know you mentioned in your introduction that are Propulsive sentences that throw you into a story that are simple declarative sentences that get a story going. Um, a lot of times it becomes, you know, what's your favorite Hemingway sentence, though, too? Um, I went back to something that Hemingway never published, but that Carlos Baker published in 1969. Um, a little series of six individual sentences. That Hemingway wrote and he, he self-titled Paris 1922. Um, and Baker's assertion was that this is when he was sort of working on that concept of one true sentence. Um, and as I reread those sentences and in each one sort of takes the form of, I saw X, right? Um, I would kind of argue that this is when Hemingway became Hemingway. Um, These are 1922 sentences. Sure, he published at this point The Divine Gesture," which doesn't sound remotely like Hemingway, um, in the New Orleans Double Dealer, and probably a lot of your readers won't even be familiar with that piece because he never republished it. Um, And he had also written Up in Michigan, but that's the only things he had written before he wrote Paris 1922. So I looked at these six sentences, and the one I chose, I have to admit, is, is by far the, the um, probably the creepiest in some ways, but it's tremendously powerful, I think. And so here's the sentence. I've seen the one-legged streetwalker who works the boulevard Madeleine between the rue Cambon and Burnham Jones, limping along the pavement through the crowd on a rainy night with a beefy, red-faced Episcopal clergyman holding an umbrella over her. So why did I choose that? Um, You know, there's that apocryphal story about Hemingway writing, you know, for sale, baby shoes never worn, right? The the sentence, that's a story. I think this is a much better story uh, than for sale, baby shoes never worn. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a story in a sentence, and it implies um, where he's going to go with the vignettes and in, in Our Time. I think it's a one-sentence vignette already. There's so much there. Um, one of the things I like about it is, um, obviously, the compression of it, the vivid imagery, the kind of objective correlative thing that he'll talk about in... in Uh, death in the afternoon, you know, what's that thing that makes a sentence produce an emotion? Um, But also the psychological charge of it. I think he's a tremendously psychological author. Um, And also that his interest in material culture, material reality, um, and history in a way that I think is not always appreciated by folks reading Hemingway. Um, So for instance, like the Rue Cambon, why the Rue Kemble?
0: Yeah,
1: um, that's right in back of the Ritz Hotel. That's where Coco Chanel had her couture house. So you you read this sentence, you know, about this one-legged streetwalker limping down the pavement in the rain, and you're thinking about a really seedy district. But no, this is a ritzy district, um, and and you have the museum, yeah. right? Well, Burnham Jones, yeah, which was a gallery that was selling all the avant-garde artists. You're right. I mean, they represented Cezanne and Matisse and Modigliani and, you know, uh, um, Laurencin, Léger. All of them were represented by Burnham Jones. Um, And so this is, their tensions. This whole sentence is structured by a series of ambiguities that are gorgeous. Um, The Rue Madeleine. Um um that you know, of course that's the French word for Magdalen, right, so right. yes, with the prostitute on the rue Magdalene, and right next to Burnham Jean's is the Church of the Magdalen, which actually looks like a Greek temple, um and so you've got on the one hand an, an episcopal clergyman with his umbrella over the prostitute, and you could do a very sentimental reading of that if you wanted to that. Here's the clergyman looking out for uh, this poor prostitute, whereas though his red face, you know, I think it's implied that he, no, no, that that's not what's going on it's here. It's more
0: suggestive all. than
1: that. Oh, God. Yeah. Yes. In a really creepy, disturbing kind yes. of a way. But yeah.
0: And it's it's turning on that tension. It's the tension which means that you can get their there are levels and layers to to this sentence. In terms oh, okay. of what the narrative within just this one sentence would be, uh, yeah. Carl, uh, Carl, I want to. I'm wondering. Uh, it's, you mentioned this at the at the outset, where how this sentence starts with "I have seen," yeah. and I wonder if to what extent you think that this operates in the same tradition as, like, I'm. This sentence made me think of Walt Whitman's "Song of Myself." Those okay. cattle, those catalogs, yeah, yeah. where he says, "I've seen this," and then in one sentence with the, just the perfect detail, he renders the suicide or the prostitute or yeah. the president of the United States. He'll, exactly. And, it's, and it's, it's, he finds the, the, the action or the detail that in 15 words makes it a living, breathing, four-dimensional thing, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know,
1: and then when you think about Magdalene, I mean, she's a true servant of Christ in spite of being the prostitute. And here you've got the the Episcopal clergyman who's supposedly the true servant of Christ who's probably picking up the prostitute. You know, and I mean, both those ambiguities are are floating around there. You know, you you could read that in any combination of ways.
0: So one of the, I guess, one of the qualities that Hemingway is always associated with is objectivity. Uh, Perhaps it's his background as a journalist, so when he says, I have seen, yeah. he's, ta- he's reporting on what, on what he has witnessed. Is he tipping his hand here? Is he saying, I'm going to satirize religion or I'm going to make fun of a streetwalker or I'm satirizing France or Paris? Or is he playing it right down the middle as a, you know, as a, I guess, a, uh, an ideal journalist would? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I
1: doubt he actually saw exactly this. It's too perfect in all of the details. um, I don't think it's it's historical in that sense. Um, I think it is as objectively presented as he could present it, but it's got all of these ambiguities buried within it that he's going to make us think about. Uh, You know, another thing that's there is that, sure, Barnum Jones that's selling this avant-garde art for money this is where art is being exchanged for money right next to the temple this thing looks like a greek temple you know and it's like oh so is that prostitution too i mean there's all of these possibilities that that are there but yeah he doesn't tip his hand and tell you oh you've got to read it this way you read it that way
0: let's talk for a few minutes about hemingway and one true sentence so in the in my introduction i read the quote from a movable feast yeah. the quote the quote i left out the sentence that he if i had kept reading he says uh, it was easy then because there was always one true sentence that i knew or had seen or had heard someone say and so Let's try to. I mean, Carl, what's your view on what true means in the context of one true sentence? Um, yeah. Authentic, actual, real, good? What? What's, can you take us deeper? Yeah. I think there's a couple of things I would say about
1: that passage in A Movable Feast. Um, he's talking specifically about the simple declarative sentence also as a way of avoiding beginning a story with the feeling of introducing or presenting something. You know? So if you think about the beginning of, let's say on the K at Smyrna, and you get a sentence like, The strange thing was, he said, right. how they screamed every night at midnight. You know, boom, you are <laughs> you're in this
0: story. I mean That's it's a great going. first sentence, yeah.
1: Yeah. And and there's there's not the feeling of, well, when I was a child, blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of lame introduction strategy he's not doing. And this is, I think, really important, particularly to his early aesthetic, um, where he's really very interested in concentration of meaning and compression of meaning.
0: So did he get away from that as his career went along? I think at certain moments
1: he develops um, the confidence to try some different things, too. Um, So take, take for instance, the beginning of Capital of the World. He tells that sort of joke about, you know, the name Paco. And it is more of an introductory strategy of a more traditional form. He can do that because he knows he's he's certainly established the other, you know, in spades by that point. and um, same sort of thing, I think, with something like, let's say, his use of focalization. Uh, you look at an early story like Indian Camp, um, and he's very careful to focalize that just through Nick. Yes. Um, at least after he he trims off the beginning of this story that was later published uh, by Philip Young as as uh, um, Three Shots. Yeah, Three Shots. Yeah. Um, and then when you go to a later story, like something like um, *The Short Happy Life of Francis Macomber*, uh, he's going to get in the head of the lion. He's going to play around with right. vocalization and do some different things. Yeah, he's so experimental as a writer, and it's often overlooked because his experiments always, or almost always, work. And when they work, they're
0: comparatively invisible, and people read past them. Interesting. So. Uh, is there something about Hemingway, um, even early Hemingway, if that's what we're mostly focusing on? Is there something about studying Hemingway that rewards one true sentence as opposed to like, could could we play this same game with Faulkner or Fitzgerald or James Joyce? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be it would be very fun to do with James Joyce. <laughs> 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 hey, <my
1: God. laughs> um, but, you know. Joyce um, is very interested, for instance, in in contrasts between sentences, or you look at a book like Ulysses, where it's full of parodies and pastiches of other people's prose styles, right? And it's almost hard to pin down and say, where's Joyce's voice there? Whereas Hemingway has that more consistent voice. I mean, with Faulkner, I think you've got that, again, the more consistent voice. And I think you could have a very fun game with with that. Um, Hemingway, you know, he invites this by talking about this concept of the one true sentence, but it arrives pretty late. You know, I mean, it's we get it in The Movable Feast, which he's writing at the end of his career. Although right after he's rediscovered his early papers and his early manuscripts, right? You know, in 1957 yes, in the Ritz yeah. Hotel. And I, I almost think it's looking at those manuscripts that gets him to... Look, maybe it, maybe even at Paris,
0: 1922, and say, "Oh yeah, I remember when I was that's, doing that." You know, that's right. Does this sentence that you've chosen does it owe itself anything to the people who are directly influencing him, like let's say Ezra Pound and those kinds of Im- Imagist poems? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it also, folks, he read like he had read Havelock
1: Ellis's erotic symbolism. And stuff. So he, you know, he's definitely relying on that and he recommended that book to all sorts of folks. So that gets into the sort of the psychology of sex in this. But um, when Pound said, um, you know, I'm going to do uh, this, you know, inquiry into modern prose style, right, or inquest, I think was the word you know, right, used. That's right. Into modern prose style. I think that really invites things like this, like the vignettes of In Our Time, and and Milton Cohn's written really well about that. John Beale's written really well about that. Um, I think that did make Hemingway self-conscious of his prose style in a good way,
0: um, in a way that really led him to refine his craft. So when I was looking at the Across the River and Into the Trees stuff, he He referred to writing in nineteen forty nine and nineteen fifty he, he said every word is a is like a brick, yeah and so you're putting brick after brick after brick and I'm not sure that some of these other writers that were his contemporaries uh really viewed words as bricks to that same ex- to that same uh, extent so i want so what you're what you're suggesting with this sentence. Um, and like viewing this sentence and then elaborating from it really, really does resonate. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I read it cover to cover every time we see it. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org slash journals. Could you read your sentence one more uh, one more time, Carl? Yeah. Okay, so here's the sentence.
1: I've seen the one-legged street walker who works the Boulevard Madeleine between the Rue Cambon and Burnham Jones, limping along the pavement through the crowd on a rainy night with a beefy, red-faced Episcopal clergyman holding an umbrella over her. Just a series of images that come together in a real resonance there. I mean, those ambiguities, I think, really animate this whole thing.
0: That's magnificent. Carl Eby, thank you for joining us on One True Podcast and playing One True Sentence with us. It's been an absolute delight and I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thanks, Carl. We'll do it again. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter At one true pod that's the number one true pod and email us at one true pod at gmail.com our show is a production of the hemingway foundation and society and is supported by the university of evansville and florida gulf coast university join us next time as we continue exploring hemingway his work and his world until then I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast.